This podcast is presented to you by Pastors Tom and Bonnie DeShal from Celebration Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more information, please visit celebrationmen.org. We're talking about uh, the kingdom of God. And uh, today I'm talking, uh, I'm going to pick up where we left off yesterday. How many of you were here yesterday? You heard that session. How many of you were not here yesterday? Okay, that's about a third of you that weren't here. Well, uh, I, I think it would be worthwhile to listen to that again. I think that there were some salient points in there. Uh, I began to lay a foundation yesterday uh, about the kingdom of God. And, and one of the things I want you to understand is that if we're going to have real reformation, and, you know, reformation is easy to talk about. And it's become a buzzword in the body of Christ today. Oh, we just love to talk about how we're reforming everything. But, you know, a lot of times what reformation is has more style than substance. We think it's reformation when you come into the church and you can drink a cappuccino in church. That is not reformation. That is just convenience for you. That's style. That has nothing to do with the heart of a human being. That has nothing to do with what God is doing in a person's life. And I, I, I think sometimes we don't make the right associations and understand the workings of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit operates in the hearts of men. And when God shows up, all that becomes superfluous. When men have hearts of reformation... Something happens. You know, I think of the turn of the century, the 18th century, the 19th century, when there were a group of men and women that were a part of a revival. It was called the Moravian Revival, the Moravians. Now, these men and women were so caught up against Slavery. They were working with leaders trying to have what was called, eventually became known as the Emancipation Proclamation, where slaves, African slaves, were emancipated. But that didn't happen immediately. But there were a group of Europeans that were so convicted and so transformed in their hearts and so desiring to see people come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ that they sold themselves into slavery because you couldn't go to the slave islands unless you were a shipmaster taking the slaves or unless you were a slave. And they sold themselves into slavery became slaves so that they could preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to those African slaves. Now let me tell you something. That's transformation. That's when it's no longer I that liveth, but Christ who lives in me. It's no longer holding on to some ideal that is wrapped up in your own comfort. It's about, no, what does God want out of my life? And as, as pastors and leaders, and if we're going to see the kind of transformation that God wants in the nation of Zimbabwe, in the continent of Africa, throughout the world, it's going to cost somebody something. 
if you're going to see the kind of transformation in the church that you grow, it will cost you something. And if you study every man of God in the Bible, every man of God, they go through a season where God has to do something in their heart, transform them before they're able to transform the people that they go to. And I know that that's true in my life. And usually every pastor that has any real measure of success, he's had to go through a terrible process of dying, a terrible process of, of being stripped. And I, and, I, and I hate to even preach this because, you know, we live in a day and age where we kind of have a message that says, hey, you know, it's all about climbing the ladder of success. And if you do these five things, you'll be a success. If you do these seven little steps, I, I wish it worked that way. And those steps are good, and I love leadership principles, and I, I love all that stuff, and I, and, I, and I believe in it to a degree, but I am also a student of the Bible, and I'm a student of life. And I watch men, and I see that when God lays his hand on a man, there comes a struggle. Paul said it this way. Paul said, guys, now we're having a problem with this sound from my point of view. Is it fading in and out on you? Guys, we need to get this sound straight, okay? I can't have it cutting in and out. Paul said it this way. Paul said, I have a war waging on the inside of me. He says, the thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I am doing. He says, who can deliver me from this body of flesh? Who, who can save me from myself? And, and I tell you what, that war goes on in every man or every woman of God. I tell you, our flesh is something powerful. Our desire for self-preservation, our desire to be somehow in charge and control of our own lives is a powerful force on the... Uh, in a human being. And God says, you can either be in charge of your life and live your life for yourself, but if you do so, you will lose your life. Or you can lose your life and live for me, and in so doing, you will find your life. Can I tell you something? That war will continue your whole spiritual walk with God. When you're 65 years old and you want to rise up and you still want to lead your life. God's still knocking on your door saying, oh, will you die? Will you lay this down? Will you let me live through you? And, and I want to encourage you. I believe that we're coming into a season where the Holy Spirit will move. And those of us that can yield to him, those of us that can die to self. And it will require death to self because when the Holy Spirit moves, he, he'll have you do some crazy stuff. He'll have you do things that don't look very good in the natural, but I'll tell you what, they'll bring huge spiritual results. Like standing up in front of, you know, 3,000 Jews of every tribe and every nation after they're saying, what the heck is going on here? When they hear you speaking in their own language, they're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and he'll have you stand up filled with the Holy Ghost and speak to them and they'll hear. 
That's transformational. But that's the Holy Spirit. It's being led of God. But how frightened was that little Galilean, that, 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 that fisherman who had only spent three years with Jesus. But something happened to him and he stood up on that day. And the 11 stood with him. There's a miracle right there. To get 11 men to stand with him. Good night. Look at the powerful things. So when we think of reformation, uh, I want to go through seven principles of reformation with you. And the seven principles, starting with principle one, is that the kingdom of God is based on transparency and truth and trust. Transparency and trust. Transparency and trust. Uh, this quote, I'd like to just read. It's from a guy named Harrison. He wrote a book called Culture Matters. And, and, and I, I just love what he said here. He said, to trust the individual, to have faith in the individual, is one of the elements of a value system that favors development. In contrast, mistrust of the individual, reflecting in oversight and control, is typical of societies that resist development. Implicit in the trusting society is the willingness to accept the risk that the individual will make choices contrary to the desires of government. If this risk is not accepted and the individual is subjected to a network of controls, the society loses the essential engine of economic development, namely the aspiration of each of us to live and think as we wish, to be who we are, to transform ourselves into unique beings. Where there are no individuals, only peoples and masses, development does not occur. What takes place instead is either obedience, which is really subservience, or uprising. And the fact of the matter is, this is what we see, not only in the nation of Zimbabwe, but we see it in any nation and anywhere in the world where men violate the principles of the gospel of God and begin to control other men. God never gave you and I, or any man, the ability, nor the power, nor the authority to control another man. He said, I give you dominion, I give you dominion over all things, dominion over the earth and everything that there is in the earth. He says, but one thing I reserve for myself, you do not take dominion over another human being. And that's why in a church and pastors, as pastors, when you start hearing things or you hear this come out of your mouth out of your own insecurity and you begin to try to control your people, well, if you leave, God will kill you. Hey, God's not killing anybody if they leave your church. Can I tell you that? God, 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 God's not that impressed with you, first of all. Secondly, these are the sheep of his pasture. And so that's control. When you start controlling people in your church, making them do things out of fear, out of subservience, out of domination, out of control, out of witchcraft, if 
you don't do this, God won't bless you. God will bless people. God doesn't make you their guide. He doesn't give you the power to make their decisions for them. People are going to make their own choices. And they'll be accountable for their own choices. Now let me, t- let me, let me just stop here because I, I just thought of something. Because the converse of this is true as well. You'll be surprised at how many people want you to make their choices for them. They don't want to take responsibility. I always teach pastors this, that every time someone comes into your office for counseling or for guidance, they come in with a monkey on their shoulder. And the minute they step into your office, that monkey straddles between you and them. Now they're hoping to leave the office with you carrying their monkey. (laughs) And they're always trying to offshed the responsibility. Well, pastor, what should I do? Well, do whatever you want to do. (laughs) See, I'm not taking your monkey. I'm not going to tell you what to do because the minute I tell you what to do, you're going to say, well, you told me so. See, you're not going to take responsibility. And, 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 And now I've got your monkey. I'm trying to solve your problem. I'm not going to solve your problem. The only person that can solve your problem is God and you. You have to make the choices. You have to make the decisions. And that's what always frightens me so much about Zimbabweans. How much faith you put in government to solve your problems. Well, we're just waiting for the government. Yeah, well, you've been waiting for, for 40 years, and the government hasn't solved your problems. And they're not going to. They, first of all, don't have the capacity nor the ability Secondly, it's not their responsibility. God gave you individuality. And real transformation or real reformation will only come when you and I stand up and say, I'm responsible. I don't need government. I'm not asking for you to help me. I'm not asking for your permission. I'm going to do what God gave me the right to do as a human being on the planet, on the, on the, on the, on the, on the earth. So when I when I when I when I when I when I study when I read when I pray when I when I get a when I'm trying to say well God what does transformation what does reformation look like to the nation of Zimbabwe what does it look like to Africa what does it look like to oppressed nations and most people in the world are oppressed. Believe it or not, they're not free. There are many that are Christians that still remain under oppression. Now, we can live in an oppressive society and you can, you can, you can have no water, no electricity and still be a free person. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let me read a passage of scripture to you. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. And I'm going to read this out of the Amplified Version. So this I say and solemnly affirm together with the Lord, as in his presence, that you must no longer live as the unbelieving Gentiles live, in the futility of their minds and in the foolishness and emptiness of their souls. Boy, if that doesn't describe those leading our nation today, the futility of their minds and the emptiness of their souls. 
For their moral understanding is darkened and their reasoning is clouded. They are alienated and self-banished from the life of God with no share in it. That is because of the willful ignorance and spiritual blindness that is deep-seated within them. Because of the hardness and insensitivity of their heart. And they, the ungodly in their spiritual apathy, have become callous and unfeeling. Have given themselves over as prey to unbridled sensuality. Eagerly craving the practice of every kind of impurity that their desires may demand. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If in fact you have really heard him and have been taught by him. Just as truth is in Jesus revealed in his life and personified in him. That regarding your previous way of life. You. Everybody say you. Point to your neighbor. Say you. You put off your old self. That is, you completely discard your former nature, which is being corrupted through deceitful desires. And you be continually renewed in the spirit of your mind, having a fresh, untarnished mental and spiritual attitude. And put on the new self, the regenerated and renewed nature created in God's image. That is, you're godlike in the righteousness and holiness of the truth. That is, living in a way that expresses to God your gratitude for your salvation. Therefore, rejecting all falsehood, whether lying, defrauding, telling half-truths, spreading rumors, any such as these, speak the truth, one with his neighbor. For we are, we are all parts of one another. And we are all parts of the body of Christ. Be angry at sin, at immorality, at injustice, at ungodly behavior. But don't sin. Let not your anger cause you shame or allow it. To last until the sun goes down. And do not give the devil an opportunity to lead you into sin holding, by holding a grudge or nurturing anger or harboring resentment or cultivating bitterness. The thief who has become a believer must no longer steal. But instead he must work hard making an honest living. Producing that which is good with his own hands. So that he will have something to share with those in need. Now, in the King James Bible, I was taught that verse, the Shoner version. And I didn't realize, they told me that there's no punctuation in the original text of the Bible. So it depends on where you put the textual punctuation that makes sense of the verse. And so I was told the Shoner version is, he that steals or he that stole should steal, no more working with his hands than he might have. (laughs) 
I'll let you think about that. <laughs> Do not let unwholesome, foul, profane, worthless, vulgar words ever come out of your mouth. But only such speech as is good for building up others according to the need and the occasion so that it will be a blessing to those who hear you speak. And, and, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but seek to please him by whom you were sealed and marked, branded as God's own for the day of redemption. That is the final deliverance from the consequences of sin. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, that is perpetual animosity, resentment, strife, fault finding, and slander be put away from you along with every kind of malice. That means all spitefulness, verbal abuse, malevolence. Be kind and helpful to one another, tenderhearted, compassionate, understanding, forgiving one another readily and freely, just as God in Christ also forgave you. That's a powerful passage of Scripture, isn't it? If we just meditated on that for the next year and tried to put that into practice, do you know how powerful that would be in your life, how transformative? Here's the problem that I find with many Christians is that we understand that, or we think that we get it when we read it. That's why we must meditate in the law. Some of you say, oh, I believe that. You believe it here, but you don't believe it here. You have a knowledge of it. You say, yes, that's truth. But you don't do it because it's not become part of you. Transformation means, first of all, it changes my life. I become very cognizant of the fact that I need to be one who practices this word, who lives it without strife, without reviling, loving, kind. That's transformational. And when I begin to put this to practice, man, it changes the way I live. It changes the way I view the world. It changes, and, and, and it's painful because my flesh does not want to do everything that verse says. In fact, my flesh wants to do all those negative things. I want to slander. I want to have malice. I want to be bitter. I want to hold judgment. I want to be the guy who is upset. I want to let my, my feelings out. I have been violated. It's my rights. That's the flesh. But the spirit of self-control. The spirit that yields itself to the Holy Spirit by whom we were sealed. Now there's something to think about. We have to move away from mental ascent of the gospel. We have to move away from an academic approach to the gospel. And we have to understand that we must make application of the scriptures. And it may cost you to make application. It may cost you everything. It may cost you comfort, like those Moravian missionaries. It may cost you popularity. 
It may cost you your reputation before men in order to maintain it before God. It may cost you promotion before men in this world. But the consequence of not following is that we begin to live by the desires of this deceitful world. And when you live by the desires of this deceitful world, I always say it this way, you may get what you want, but you will not want what you get. It may even cost you your very life. And sometimes when I say that, people think, you mean God's going to kill me? He's going to make me die? That could happen. That, that, that would probably be easier. But some of you may lose your livelihood. The way you're working today to, to, to live for Christ. But if your security is in your livelihood, then you will probably never obey the scriptures. Our security must be in Christ, knowing that he will provide. And some of us haven't sat that yet. We haven't really got that into us. It's like, I would betray my best friend to get a better job, to get a promotion. Well, there's no trust in that. There's no transparency. So let's just talk about transparency and trust. Because I believe until transparency and trust is the basis of our dealings with each other, we will never see reformation. And unfortunately, the very nature of tribalism and the very nature of politics is to create distrust between factions, to make us see the differences and mistrust each other. Racism is the greatest tool the enemy has to keep us separated. He's black, he must have what? What we heard yesterday, all the labels that we can put on that. He's white, he must be this way. Well, there may be some stereotypical truth to that, but the fact of the matter is, it's a point of division. It's a point where the enemy keeps us separate and keeps us from trusting. You know how white men are. You know how Chinese are. Uh, you know, I was kind of shocked last night. We had those guys up here on the stage. They looked Chinese to me. No, they were South Korean. They weren't Chinese. Well, you know, they all look the same. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. See, the enemy... He engenders suspicion, fostered by domination and control, and shrouded in fear. Trust inherently relies and relates to a firm belief in the reliability, truth, or strength of a person or thing. How, how many of you? How many of you, when you uh, go sit down on a chair, how many of you check it out before you sit on it? Make sure. No. 
How many of you have had a chair fall out from under you? Have you ever had a chair break underneath you? Yeah, I mean, but why did that happen? Because inherently, you trust that chairs were made to sit in, and so you sit in them. You just sit in them. You don't think about it. And you're always shocked when one falls out from underneath you. I mean, that wasn't supposed to happen. But you have an inherent belief that chairs support weight. They're trustworthy. They're reliable. Well, it's the same in life. If you don't believe that something is trustworthy or reliable, then more than likely, you're not going to rely upon it. And see, the basis of the kingdom of God is not only that God can be relied upon. How many of you really trust in God? See, some people still don't trust God. We we trust ourselves, and we say we trust God, but we trust ourselves. God says, you know the proverb, you you know the picture, don't you? Have you ever seen that story or that picture, that cartoon, where the guy falls over the cliff and he grabs a limb and there's a... You know, a thousand feet below him, and there's 200 feet up. He can't get off that limb, and he cries out, "Somebody help me! Somebody help me!" And this voice comes out from heaven, "Let go! <laughs> Somebody else help me! <laughs> Somebody else help me!" See, sometimes God gets you in that place, and He says, "Let go." I can't trust God. You can't trust God. How do I trust God? I, I, you know, I'm going to hold on to the limb, even though I'm going to die out here. It's easier to do that than to trust God, isn't it? Just tap your neighbor. Say, you know, I think he's talking about you today. So the basis of the kingdom of God is the fact that not only can God be relied upon, that also those who are his representatives on earth can be relied upon. And that's why transformationally, things like keeping time are really important. Managing money, being good stewards is really important. Honoring your word is really important, being a man or a woman of your word. Why? Because if you're going to be transformational, if you're honoring contracts, see, if you're going to be transformational, you must understand that you do not represent yourself. You represent God. God is transforming our nation through his people and the way that they carry themselves and the way that they manage themselves and the way that they stand for righteousness and the way that they represent him on the earth. You are his ambassadors. This is what you as pastors and you and I as leaders must call our people to. And you cannot live this life Doing it by the letter of the law. You can't make yourself do this. You must do this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God has to work this in you in order for this to come to pass. The foundation of this trust 
is that God speaks the truth and can be relied upon. And that men who are governed by the principles of God's kingdom will do likewise. On this foundation, we can transform not only culture, but also nations. But let me tell you how it happens. One person at a time. We're not going to have an election and change the nation. I'm sorry. I wish that was going to happen. Now, there will be changes, but I'll tell you where it's going to really happen. And it's happening in our church right now. We have so many people, and you as pastors have so many people that if you'll train them to be honorable, if you'll train them to be voices of God in their situation, to not compromise, to stand, to be wise. Boy, I've watched some of our young men and young women. They get into these positions of power. And at first, they're so heady. They're so excited. Ooh, ooh, guess what? I've just been promoted. I say, yeah, well, enjoy that because that's about over. Because the minute that the world gives you power, guess what? They want something for it. They don't, they're not principled. Let me tell you something. We just read what they are. They have an agenda. And they think that they're going to use you. They will. And they draw you into their agenda. Well, listen, we'd like to give you this new Mercedes. Oh, but, but, but you're going to have to overlook this. You're going to have to overlook that. You're going to, well, you know, we have this farm for you. But you're going to understand if we give you the farm, you're going to have to turn a blind eye to the fact that we're taking all the diamonds off the farm. See, there's, there's, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that goes on in these worldly positions of power. So you, you, you think that climbing that corporate ladder is going to make you successful and happy. Well, if it's only to be successful and happy, you're climbing the wrong ladder. If it's to be influential for the kingdom and for God to use you, there's a wisdom that comes with that. And it can be very transformational. And it can be your, God's hand extended through you in that situation. I'm hearing some holy murmurs out there. Maybe just tap your neighbor and say, I think that his preaching is better than your amening this morning. The second principle that I'd like to talk about is that the kingdom of God exhibits a value for life. Now, it's often said about Africa that life is cheap in Africa. Uh, I think that's in many ways true. I think it's very cheap in, in Zimbabwe. Uh, life expectancy is less than 60 years in 28 countries of Africa and below 50 years in 18 countries of Africa. Zimbabwe life expectancy is 45 years for men and 43 years for women. Does that shock you? Shocks me. Poverty, of course. I was with a doctor. <laughs> Believe it or not, I was with a doctor in California two weeks ago. And you know what he told me? He says, we're going to solve the problem of cancer. And he says, when we do that, he says, uh, he says, life expectancy for the average American will be 105 years old. He says, you may live to be 105. I'm thinking, man, that's three times the average of an African. I'll be here after all you are dead and gone. I'll be taking, <laughs> I'll be taking care of your kids and your grandkids. Hey, praise God. Who is that guy? Superman. That's who. <laughs> Poverty, of course, 
is staggering across the continent of Africa. The World Bank reports that half of the 1.2 billion people in Africa live under the poverty date of line. There are at least 13 countries to where, where half the adult population is illiterate. Amazingly, that's not true of Zimbabwe. At one time we had 95% literacy. I don't think we're there now anymore. I think it's on its way down. But at one time this was the most literate country in Africa. So much so that we lost 5 million of our people without even knowing that they left because there was no mass exodus. They could go and get jobs all over Africa and all over the world because they were literate. Had that been illiterate people, that would have been a major crisis. That would have been another Rohingya. That would have been another, uh, you know, uh, serious, serious problem. But because, because we were illiterate, we, we just went all over the world and got jobs. In many sub-Saharan African countries, 10% of children die before the age of five years old. Yet the population growth rate of sub-Saharan Africa is nearly 3% annually. That's four times the amount or the rate found in high-income in countries. And of course, the enormity of the AIDS pandemic is absolutely astonishing. At one time, Zimbabwe had the highest rate of infection in the world. It's only in recent years that it's been overtaken by three other African countries. We are in Zimbabwe trying to pass laws to abort our babies. We're following the Western satanic cults that abort their children. We're following the Molech and Baal worship that sacrifices our children. And it's the West that's bringing this upon us. And yet I hear our African leaders thinking that because this is modernism that we should do this. As believers, we should grieve every time someone dies of AIDS, every time someone dies at the hand of an abortionist, every time that someone dies in one of our hospitals because we did not provide the basic services that our hospitals require. We should value life. Here's the truth. Whatever one judges as being valuable or important in life is based on the principles and the standards that one chooses to uphold. The lower the principle, the lower the value. You see, if a man is viewed as being formed by God and valued by God and that life is sacred, then his worth and his desirability is increased. But if the converse is true, then man simply becomes a commodity, a piece on a chessboard, willing to be traded for any other piece of relative rank or importance, according to whatever set of rules happened to be in play at the time. You see, without kingdom standards set in place, values simply relate, or revert, I should say, to the lowest common denominator. 
to the law of the jungle. We begin to operate by the law of the jungle, the law of the survival of the fittest. You know, I was speaking to one of our leaders and they were speaking to one of the CIO leaders and they were talking about, you know, how the CIO and how our government and many of our government leaders feel about the people, the masses, the population here. And this guy very cold-heartedly just looked at our pastor and he said, these people are no different than chickens to us. We'd just as soon kill a person as kill a chicken. I believe that. I believe that's a true expression of how we view life in Zimbabwe, in Africa, and some places around the world. Life is not valuable. But to God and to believers, we should uphold life. We should be fighting for the life of everyone. We should have hearts of compassion. Or have we become so hard-hearted? Have we too become calloused? There's so much need. There's so much, so many problems. There's so many people that have so many needs. Those needs are here because of the mismanagement of the country. Our beggars, our hospitals falling apart is just pure mismanagement. It needs to be transformed. And the power to transform is not in government. It is in you and I. God has given us the power of transformation. But you can't do it sitting on your rusty dusty. Let me give you one more point. I'll... How, how many of you ever read the book Animal Farm? But well, we're living it. Go read it again, because that's what we're living right now. Where there's no rule of law, where there's no value system that we uphold together, then it just becomes the survival of the fittest. It becomes whoever's in charge makes the rules. I think one of the expressions was the golden rule. He who has the gold rules. You know what I'm talking about? I think it's important that we as pastors in particular, I'm speaking to leaders now, that we understand that it's going to take some courage to bring about transformation. It's going to take some very, very calculated, very spiritual, very spirit-guided leadership to bring this nation out of the this present darkness that we find ourselves in. But the beauty is that where there is great darkness, when lights turn on, the darkness is exposed. But it takes bold men and women. It takes men and women who have courage to speak the truth in love, to love people. And as we're talking about this, to not only have the kingdom of God based on transparency, and trust, a love for life, and to value life. But number three, the kingdom of God is established on an attitude of faith towards wealth. Faith towards wealth. You know, 
Romans 4.17 4, says, God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Well, I tell you what, there's a truth in that passage of Scripture. God gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Kingdom culture believes that wealth consists of what does not yet exist. It actually believes, in a kingdom culture, we believe that there is wealth whose source is not limited because we serve an unlimited God. Because God is unlimited, he can guide us and lead us into obtaining wealth. It's he that gives a man the ability to make wealth, the Bible says. And so when you have this attitude of faith towards wealth, You'll be amazed at what it does in terms of your confidence as a human being. But non-progressive cultures, non-progressive cultures, tap your neighbor. Is he talking about you? Just ask him. Is he talking about you? They believe that wealth consists of what already exists. That's why in the developing world there's so much emphasis placed on land and what derives from it. We have to have the land. Whereas in the West and in the developing world primarily, wealth derives from new innovations and investing in the future. You see, this principle or the lack of it also affects your attitude towards competition. The kingdom of God promotes competition, healthy competition, because it's essential for everything from politics to enterprise. You have to have healthy competition. A kingdom mentality looks not at what already is in the marketplace with a jealous eye to possess, but rather what can be built in the future so as to increase market share Bring with it the benefits such as wealth creation, jobs, increased prosperity. And the word of God, speaking of wisdom, says this. With me, in Proverbs 8, 18, with me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. And verse 21 goes on to say, bestowing wealth on those who love me and making their treasuries full. I have always said this, that we do not have a knowledge problem in Zimbabwe. We do not have a knowledge problem in Africa. We do not have a knowledge problem in the world. We have a wisdom problem. Put that back up. With me, with wisdom are riches. With me, wisdom is honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. With me, wisdom, I bestow wealth on those who love me and make their treasuries full. It comes from the wisdom of God. I'm always shocked at how... Some people look and they can only see what is. And the only way that they think that they can make a living or be prosperous is to take away from somebody else that already has what they want. I'm going to take what they have. They've never built anything. They've never grown anything. They don't want to learn. They don't have any aspiration to take the risks. So they never have those experiences. And, and, and that's how you grow and become a full human being both in traditional African thinking and in this poverty thinking, there's, a, there's something contrary to the Bible. 
Oh, let me, let me, just, let me jump back here. I, I missed the part here. As citizens of God's kingdom, I want you to think about this for a minute. Our goal should be to leave an inheritance for our children and our children's children. All right? If you're, if you're growing in wealth and prosperity, it's to leave an inheritance for your children. The Bible says that a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. Hallelujah. We have to pass on our wealth to the next generation so that they can build on what previous generations have already accomplished. However, in traditional cultures, in non-developing cultures around the world, there's an emphasis on the present and meeting the immediate needs of those that are alive right now. In part, this is a response to poverty. In part, it's a response to the urgent needs that everybody faces right now. But it is also a result of practices that surround ancestral worship. The worship of very, very demanding gods. Which always takes away from the younger and gives it to the older. I'm always shocked that most of the practices that I see in our ancestral worship have a monetary trade-off with them. And it's always taking from the younger and giving it to the older. It's always taking away from those who should be building prosperity and taking it and giving to those who are steeped in poverty. And it's always manipulated. It's always full of fear, control, domination, witchcraft. Many, uh, I've also recognized in the Western gospel a tendency for many church people that they, that they hold on to. And it's led to the development of a kind of thinking which equates poverty with holiness. Somehow that wealth is evil. Uh, I think that the generation I grew up in, the 60s and 70s, the Jesus generation, we were so focused on Jesus coming back today. He's coming back tomorrow. He'll be, he's just, it's just around the corner. Jesus is returning. So don't go to university. Don't worry about how you live. Don't worry about getting any money. Just, he's coming back. Well, man, I'll tell you, it's about 50 years now and he hasn't made it. He's not back yet. Now, I hope he comes tomorrow. But I'm going to live like he's not coming for another thousand years, okay? I'm going to keep building. I want to keep building an inheritance for my children, my children's children, both naturally and spiritually, okay? Hallelujah. So whether it's the traditional African thinking uh, or th uh, this kind of poverty thinking that I just spoke about in the Western mindset, they're contrary to biblical principles, which honor the generations and, and, and admonish the generations to leave an inheritance, one for the next. And that's, of course, in the, with the exception of orphans and widows, which we're called to take care of. Okay? Basic to the principle of leaving an inheritance for future generations is the principle of sowing and reaping. And God demonstrates this throughout his word. Seed time and harvest will never fail as long as the earth remains. Whew. So to have a harvest, we must sow seed into the ground. To expect a harvest with no seed in the ground is to attempt to operate God's principle 
illegally. And we see that happening all the time. We have people in our country that think that somehow some Western power should come here and solve our problems or some Eastern power should come here and solve our problems that they should harvest out of that for themselves personally. This is wrong. It's wrong thinking. It's unbiblical thinking. And none of us are learning. We're not growing our own people. It needs transformation. We need to transform ourselves. We need reformation. Is anybody listening to me today? We cannot leave a harvest for future generations if we don't plant the seeds for that harvest in this generation. Everything we do at Celebration Church and at Celebration Ministries is according to a pattern that others can follow. That's why we record everything. It's so that we can leave an inheritance for another generation. All of our messages are taped. All of our businesses, all of our business meetings, all of the meetings that we have have minutes. Why? Why do we do that? We take photographs of everything. We have we have photo files. We have a we have a whole archive. Why, why, why would we do that? Well, let me tell you something. If you don't think you have a future for your family, you're not taking any photos. You don't have photo albums. You're not, because you don't care about, all you care about is you. You just care about living today. But if you really believe that your family has a destiny, that you have a future, you're taking photos, you're telling your grandkids, this is where we're going. You're building memories. You're building legacy. You're talking about, look what dad did. Look what granddad did. Look what we're, but you know what? We don't, we, we, if, if, you, if, you don't have a, if you don't have a positive attitude towards wealth and developing, you don't, take, you don't record anything. We record everything here. Why? Because I believe one day somebody, one of my grandkids will walk in here and say, you know what? I'm, the, I'm now the pastor of this church. And, you know, I was just going through one of the archives. And, man, I, my, I see here where my, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, you know, they, they were, when they were building, they made this mistake. It cost them $100,000. Here's how they handled it. They got up and they just confessed their sin and they told about the mistake and they were just transparent about it. Man, you know what? That's how we want to grow our church. That's how we want to be. We just want to be honest. Oh, you know what? I see when the drought came, the 80s, here's what they did. Oh, I guess we have a record of everything. Our children will go back and look at it. There'll be pictures. Wow. Did you know in the 1980s there were more white people in the church than there were black people? Did you know that? Oh, look, here, look at this picture. This is crazy. See, some of you don't know the history of your own church. Some of you don't care. Sadly, so many visions die with the current generation. I may be the founder and I may be the senior pastor of the church. And I may be a leader of the ministry. But I do not believe in building a vision around myself. It has to be a generational vision for my children's children and my spiritual children. 
We will not know if we are a success until our great-grandchildren's generation. If we have built to last until then, then you can call me a success. If we haven't, then I am a failure. But I believe that as we have faith towards wealth and leaving an inheritance, that principle will be abiding for our future. Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org.